On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has commanded we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountains or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses 
went down to the people and told them. Let me read. I'm going to read for us. And hopefully this uh, reading will come up on the screen. This is the, um, the, the, the last bit of Exodus 20. So Exodus 19 and 20 um, uh, go together. We're going to be looking uh, a lot more at the middle of Exodus 20, the bulk of Exodus 20 next week. But this um, uh, uh, paragraph at the end sort of fulfills um, what is being said um, in, in, in chapter 19 uh, for those of you who heard it and for those of you who have been reading it. And, and uh, as we met uh, the, the God um, of the Old Testament on this mountain. So we get to the end of, cha- uh, of the, the, the end of the chapter 20, um, specifically um, verses 18 uh, to 21 of, of chapter 20. Those of you who have Bibles, look that up and it's on the screen in front of you. This is Exodus 20, 18 uh, to 21. <clears throat> now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. <clears throat> well, let me pray uh, for us as, as we begin looking at this part um, of God's word. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you uh, for this time together again. Thank you for your word. Lord, we, we pray with all the issues of technology that, 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 that it wouldn't uh, detract or distract us away from what is going on here. We pray that just for, for the next few minutes, we'd be able to concentrate on your word and concentrate on the goodness of it and help us um, as your church family to take in things that we really need to hear. And for those who, who are listening and watching who, who maybe don't know you this morning, May they be wooed by the deeply relational God of the Old Testament as we see him in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Well, uh, we can get rid of the, the, the reading from the screen. And, uh, and please do have your Bibles open there in front of you for those of you who have them. And welcome back uh, to the book of Exodus. Um, uh, thank you, Alan, very much um, for reading. Uh, for those of you who heard it, that was great. Thank you, Andy, as well, for playing. And for all those who get our services ready uh, on a Sunday, the tech is, is truly um, quite something. Well, as I said uh, last week, we're now in a very different part of Exodus. We've left Egypt behind and we are now in the wilderness years of Israel's history. Forty years this, this part of the Bible takes where the people are going to wander um, in the desert being taught lessons from the God who has mightily saved them in order that they may learn to trust him and him only and not long um, for Egypt and not to depend on themselves. He is putting them through, if you remember, a boot camp an intense training program that is going to hone them and make them fit uh, for his purpose, that is to follow and obey him so that they can enjoy the relationship that he is building up with his people so that they can survive the attacks and temptations of the world around them that would wish to take them away uh, from this God. And as we've seen, the people don't do particularly well at all under this training program. They immediately grumble. There is barely any time between the the gargantuan rescue of God's people through the Red Sea and the beginning of this journey into the wilderness before the people start complaining that God has left them to die and that he is conspiring with Moses to kill them 
by hunger. And, and, and so they accuse God. And so the desire that God is trying to, to lovingly knock out of his people springs up immediately. Would that we have died in Egypt, they say. We don't trust this God. We want to go back to before we were saved. We want to go back to Egypt. And that's a desperate state of affairs, isn't it? And, and, and seeing as, as the grumbling doesn't dissipate by the end of last week's passage, the question now is, well, what on earth is God going to do with this people? Well, as we come to chapter 19 today, we immediately see what God is going to do. He is going to do what he has always done, the thing that we have seen him doing in Exodus from chapter 1, and he is going to reveal more of himself. He is going to reveal more of his character, and he is going to continue to woo his people back to him, even as they rail against him. And the thing that he wants to reveal today in our passage is the nature of the relationship that he desires to have with his people. And he is going to he is going to reveal this part of his character. He's going to reveal this relationship by bringing his people to the first big marker in their journey, the first big moment in their wandering in the wilderness by bringing them to a mountain. And not just any mountain, but an almighty mountain, a, a spitting, angry mountain, a terrifying mountain, a mountain that looks a far cry from a God who wants an intimate relationship with his people. A mountain, in other words, that, 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 that demands our attention. For, for this mountain is meant to scream, important, see here. It's, it's meant to assault the senses of those watching on that something big is about to happen, something truly colossal is near, that, that we are in for something truly special here. But more than sensing that we're in for something truly special from the drama in front of us, we actually know that we're in for something special here because for those of you who have been following Exodus closely, we have actually already been told that something special is going to happen at this very mountain. And that is all the way back in chapter 3. Feel free to flick back there with me who have Bibles. It's worth looking at this before we move on. God is speaking to Moses, if you remember, out of, of the burning bush um, <clears throat> at the site of a mountain. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see that it was called the mountain of God, the mountain of Horeb. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, we read this. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, the Moses that mountain was at, chapter 3, verse 1, was the mountain of God, Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. And so here we are. Chapter 19, here we are. We've, we've arrived at this mountain that we've actually been aiming for since chapter 3, but we've probably forgotten it as much as the people of God did. But here we are, the mountain, the plain of Sinai. And you can see, therefore, that this is actually a really big moment. It's a big turning point. It is quite definitively the halfway through the book of Exodus. We're here. Now what? It begs the question, what is God going to do next? What has God got to reveal next? Well, you see, as I've said, we, we've reached the pivot chapter of this remarkable book. 
For as we look back over what we've just walked through over these past weeks, we see that chapters 1 to 18 is all about what God has saved his people from. He has saved them from Egypt, from slavery, from death. But from this point on, the um, as, we, as we stand on the foot of this almighty fiery mountain, and as we head into the second half of this book, the, the new thing that God wants us to reveal from here on in is the reality of what God is saving his people for. And that brings us to our first main point this morning. The first lesson of the mountain is that God is reminding his people that he has saved them for a close, personal, intimate relationship for himself. God is reminding his people that he has saved them for a close, personal, intimate relationship for himself. Just read verses 1 to 4 with me again of chapter 19. On the third new moon, um, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, this is the very first point that God wants his people to know. What he wants his people to remember before anything else. And that is that God has brought his people to himself from the grip of slavery and injustice, through the desert on eagles' wings and safely to the mountain of God's presence, safely into relationship with himself. And this is incredibly important for the whole of the entirety of the book of Exodus, and in fact for the rest of the Bible, especially as we go into the Ten Commandments next week. It's important that we look at this kind of relationship with himself in detail, As such, this morning, we're going to actually spend a lot of our time looking at just three verses for the bulk of our time together. For the intricate logic of what God says to his people through Moses in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 19, draw our attention to three particular characteristics of this relationship that have to be understood before we go any further in this book. And I've broadly split... um, these three verses of this relationship into three subpoints. For this relationship that, that God has brought us into consists of, verse 4, reminding his people of the Lord's past saving action. Verse 5, reminding his people of the Lord's present saving command. And verses 5 and 6, reminding his people of his future promised blessing. It's these three verses that we're going to focus on today as they form the heart of this relationship that God has brought his people into. And as we see that, I want us to be asking ourselves questions as to our relationship with this God this morning, especially as a church family. What does our relationship with the Lord Jesus look like? As we see this profoundly beautiful relationship being unfurled by the God of this mountain, We need to be asking ourselves, are we living in a right way in relationship with this Lord Jesus? 
And are there things that I I might need to work on and change if that's not the case? Well, our first sub-point concerning the nature of this relationship that God wants his people to see, first, the Lord's past saving action. And we see that in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, says God, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, as we've been seeing um, ourselves over the past many weeks, God is always reminding his people of what he has done in the past. Indeed, God says, I will be known as the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so as we move into looking at what God has saved us for in the second half of Exodus, it's always it's impossible to understand that until we see what he has saved us from. We can't take the two apart. They work together. But not only does God remind the people of what he has saved his people from, but how he has saved them in the past. And how did he? Well, it says here that he brought his people to safety as if on the backs of eagles' wings. And that is a truly powerful image that is conjured up here. For those of you who are into uh, David Attenborough uh, documentaries, um, I, you might well know this, I'm sure, but, but for an eagle chick learning to fly, it is a truly perilous thing. And only a few days old, an eagle chick is actually pushed out of its nest when it's learning to fly uh, and by its parents, and it, and it flaps like mad as it hurtles towards the ground. And, and just as the chick is about to hit the ground, the, the mother eagle will, will swoop in under the chick and take it up into the air and saving it from certain death. It's a really powerful image in nature. And that's how a baby eagle learns to fly, apparently. You, 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 you see that the, that the chick has, has no control over its fate. There is, there is nothing it can do to save itself. It's too weak to fly. It's too helpful to do anything productive about its situation. Its, its mother has to intervene. And, she, and as she does, so, so the image continues. That chick riding on its mother's wings similarly has no control over the direction to where its mother is taking it. It has no say over the decisions that the eagle makes. It has to trust its mother. It has to cling on for dear life. And by trusting its mother, by following what its mother is doing, the chick learns to fly. And as it does so, at every moment, it is entirely dependent on its mother's care. Well, that is very simply what God is to his people. That is how he saves. A father God is a mother eagle to his chicks. Meaning it was every bit God's action that brought his people into the present relationship safely with him. Like an eagle chick safely secured on its enormous parent, so God's people have been brought safely out of slavery to this mountain purely by God's sovereign action through his fatherly care. God's people had been acted upon in the past and they contributed nothing to it, just like the chick and its mother. And that's what God wants to reveal on this mountain by way of the very nature of this relationship with him. God's people need to see that it is purely by God's action, purely by God's strength, purely out of his decision making, which brought them out of slavery into relationship with him. 
And as much as that is clear to see, it's actually much harder for us to accept. We, we don't like being told that we are helpless and can do nothing. And that's where we turn the lens on us this morning, the people of God as a church family here who have also been greatly saved in the past and also by nothing that we have done. The question is, do we believe that? It is easy as a Christian to think that there was maybe some part that I played in order to aid my own rescue or that I contributed to it in some way that I had a particular skill that he needed to have for his team and he found it in me and so he saved me. Or that there was something funny or or lovable about me that that, that God endeared me to him. Not at all is that the case. The Lord's people were rescued purely in the Lord's strength, purely by his initiative. What's more, as we get to know this people, as we saw last week, there is absolutely nothing endearing about any of them. They are groaning, grumbling, ungrateful, untrusting. They even want to go back to Egypt. It it does beg the question whether the Lord could not have rescued a better people. So as we think on this, as, as saved people ourselves, we must ask ourselves the question, who gets the credit for our rescue? It is easy to think that we might have some part to play or that there was something inherently lovable about us and cuddly and endearing that, God's ca- that caught God's eye, that attracted him to us. Not at all. Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There is nothing alive in us, let alone something lovable in us. We were hopelessly lost in slavery to sin, but God loved us deeply in spite of ourselves, purely out of his own affection, not because of anything we have done or anything that we are, but God saved us and God carried us despite ourselves on eagle's wings. This is love, said the Apostle John, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is while we were still sinners, says Paul, that Christ died for us. Not while we were naughty, but affably adorable, Christ died for us. No, our salvation is all down to him and only him. And to those of us who are Christians, can you see that falling into this way of thinking produces real difficulty and real issues in our relationship with the Lord? If we assume that there is any part of us that has worked for our salvation, it will lead us to minimizing our contact with the Lord increasingly on a daily basis. We become ungrateful, just as the people of God did. If I think I've got enough going on in me that I can manage most of the Christian life on my own, then I don't need to spend time with God's word. I don't need to spend time praying. I don't need to spend time with God's people. I'm not perfect, but I am okay. I I can do this. I've got this. Even subconsciously. Well, no, says God, you're not okay on your own. You don't got this. You need me. And you really needed me. And you'll only accept that you need me to get you through every single part of every single day if you have at your heart 
of your understanding of this relationship between us that I alone saved you by my own action and purely out of my unmerited affection for you in the past. Understand that and you will be drawn into a deeper ways of dependence and faith in this relationship than you can imagine. Dependence and faith that will equip you, equip you and fortify you and maintain you as you walk through a wilderness of an experience. A painfully difficult life in a fallen world. Only then will this relationship between us be formed and grown and enjoyed. Redeemer, who gets the credit for our rescue this morning? Do we actively daily live out a life that understands that God alone has saved us when we were blind, dead wretches? And does that manifestly affect my everyday walk with the Lord in gratitude and in wanting to follow him? Secondly, however, not only does the Lord remind his people of his saving action in the past, but also he gives his people a saving command in the present. Now, this is the part of Exodus where if we're not careful, we kind of feel that the foundations that we have been so carefully building up over the past 18 chapters concerning this, this God, but begin to rock a little if we don't get this right. For after having made a lot of noise about the God of unconditional, unmerited love who saves his people despite who they are, we come to a conditional command, and it's found in verse 5 of chapter 19. Now, if you obey me fully, says God, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. That's a conditional statement, isn't it? If you obey me, you will be this, or I will do that for you. What happened to the God of unconditional love uh, a sentence ago. I thought you just said that we couldn't offer anything for our salvation. Why is God adding a condition now? Well, remember where this condition comes, on the back of almighty rescue. It comes on the back of everything that we've looked at over the past 18 chapters. It comes on the back of our first point. It comes after first verse 4, after God's saving action in the past. You see, God has already brought his people safely, securely into relationship with him. That's already happened. So the condition that's being referred to here can't relate to the status of the relationship. That has already been secured safely on eagle's wings. The conditional command then must refer to the enjoyment of this relationship. And in fact, if we were to take a trip down um, Old Testament lane, this is, where, this is what we see how God has worked all the time. God creates Adam and Eve, and God gives them the perfection of his garden when they definitively didn't deserve it because they didn't even exist. And then he gives them the command not to eat of the tree of good and evil. Abraham, called by God to receive a blessing like no other person on earth, he is given a child when he could do nothing about that. His wife was barren, he was too old, and only after the unmerited blessing was he given the command to trust him. Indeed, here in Exodus, after this astonishing rescue, where nothing is asked of this people, 
So the command. This is what we see next week in in chapter 20. The the Ten Commandments are given to Israel. They start in verse 3, you shall have no other gods but me. But it comes after verse 1, God spoke all these words of law who brought you up out of Egypt. You see, God's commands and laws are given to a rescued and redeemed people already in relationship with him. You see, this people's status is not dependent on their obedience. However, obedience is nevertheless absolutely required in this freely given, already won relationship. And that's not a contradiction. Because that's how we exist in relationships today. You see, being in a relationship carries responsibilities, doesn't it? It's true between a parent and child. It's true between a husband and wife. Jen and I uh, loved each other first and we agreed to marry before we made vows and signed our legal responsibilities under the law as man and wife. It's true between close friends. The basis of those relationships which have been freely given and are already received and established requires a certain level of behavior and obedience. Otherwise, those relationships, though still technically viable, they are just deeply miserable. And if we understand that, if we get our heads the right order of blessing and law from God, then the law doesn't become a noose around our necks. It becomes a beautiful thing. It becomes a a sign that God loves us. I, I love living under the law with Jen because it's a sign that I love her and she loves me. I want to do that. I willingly signed my wedding vows. Can you see that the law becomes a sign that we're already in relationship with him? It's a sign that he wants what's best for us. It's a sign that he's really deeply involved in in his relationship with us. It's a sign that he really wants us to enjoy him. And so I'm far more likely to keep his commands when it's already given in a loving relationship that has already been won and established than thinking wrongly that the law has been given as a means by which I have to try and be good enough in order to try and win a relationship with this God. You see, the principal understanding of all of this is that the law is placed for our benefit, for our protection and for our enjoyment in this relationship into which God has freely and actively called us and saved us into. And it is a beautiful thing It is why the psalmist can say, I love your law, O my God. Because it shows you have me in relationship with you. I love your covenant. So again, as Christians in that light, as the people of God saved freely in Christ, do we live a life of loving obedience to the Lord? Do we do what he says? Do we communicate with him in this relationship? Do we accept that there are things that are unacceptable to be doing, thinking, doing, saying, pursuing, as we live saved in relationship with him, just as there are in a marriage relationship? Am I wanting to obey the Lord Jesus who has saved me? Quickly moving on, however, thirdly, this relationship between God and his people is all based 
on the Lord's promised future blessing. Third sub-point, the Lord's promised future blessing. We see this in the second half of verse 5. And then going into chapter 6, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. Here, God describes the wonderful blessings of obedient children in loving relationship with him. And what an incredible blessing. You are going to be, says the God who owns the universe, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the whole earth is mine. He's already demonstrated that the whole earth is, it is his, hasn't he? He's rained down plague after plague on the whole of Egypt. He's left devastated in those massive acts of decreation. God is the creator God and the earth is literally his. And yet from amongst that devastation, in that display of sovereign power, he plucks for himself a group of people he calls his treasure. The Hebrew word for treasure here is personal supreme wealth he calls them his his personal treasure something that he deeply loves and craves and hoards to himself it's fascinating god owns the world and yet this little people group are his personal treasure in it and as beautiful as that description is for his people, it is in fact a truly incomprehensible description considering, as we've just looked at, what they are like. They are hardly sparkling. And yet it's true, this group of dirty, rotten scoundrels will grow in relationship with this God to be his treasured possession in the earth. Uh, my mother was uh, born on the old Kent Road in London. And yes, that is the cheapest space on a Monopoly board, and we never let her forget that. And uh, it's quite a big road. And uh, right in the middle of this road, sandwiched between um, an old car garage and a convenience store, is a church. And on that church, there is a banner, or at least um, there used to be a banner, that said, God's Jewel in Peckham. Now, that's quite a claim, even for Peckham. But, but if it is a, a faithful church that obeys the teaching of Jesus and holds out the word of life, and that is absolutely what it is. A jewel in the old Kent Road. The way the world regards that church or its members is irrelevant. They are, as they exist in relationship with God, his personal treasure, shining and glimmering in his sight. His. As Christians this morning, do we realize that we are greatly greatly valued that even though we were unlovable and hopeless that in fact we are as greatly valued as personal treasure we are his we are God's not just saved and plonked in the earth belonging nowhere but belonging to him as humans we all crave to belong somewhere don't we we all crave to be claimed by someone, even in our deeply individualistic culture. We have never been more geared as a Western culture around the breathless pursuit of identity and identification. 
whether it's to a football club or to a friendship group or to a political party, whether it's identification concerning race, nationhood, culture. The, the byword for the past 10 years of liberal progress has been identification, how I identify which group I belong to, what tribe I fit into, who it is that speaks to me and for me, and that's not a bad thing. Again, on the BBC over the past few weeks, I was listening to a chat about football coming back. And apparently that's a really important thing. And uh, once again, a, a, a caller uh, rang in and said something along the lines of, I need football back. I don't just support my team, I belong to them, he said. It's who I am. It's how I describe myself. I describe myself as a Crystal Palace fan. Not having my team play leaves me homeless. And of course, it's an important thing that we get football back. <laughs> because can you see that we all want to belong somewhere? We crave to be claimed by someone that we love. Every human wants to hear the words, you are mine. Well, can you see that for the Christian, we have a supremely incredible identity? We belong to someone truly unique and wonderful, and that is the God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ in the new. We are in Christ. We belong to God. We literally belong to him. The God of the universe looks down on his people and says, you are mine. And that has stunning repercussions for us living in relationship with him today. For understanding the God who claims me means I am less likely to go after other things. For who can compare with him? My heart is less likely to be wooed by other things that demand I belong to them. You see, if I understand this part of my relationship with God, that I belong to him, that I am his, deeply treasured and valued, suddenly the other things that I may choose to identify myself with, they all pale into the background. Suddenly me being British or Scottish or male or a father or a minister or a Dunfermline football supporter, I'm not a Dunfermline football supporter, that's an analogy, as wonderful as all those things are, suddenly they become less important as I see my ultimate identity is Christian. Treasure of God in Christ. And when I get there with my understanding of him, so all those other identities aren't the be-all and end-all of me, as wonderful as they are and as much as I can enjoy them. I'm less bothered then if my football team doesn't win because I belong to God. He is my ultimate identity. I'm less likely to idolise and exasperate my children as a father because they don't feed my ultimate identity. I'm less likely to, to break apart when I lose a job or when my country goes through a time of deep global humiliation or for some people when they become refugees and stateless, as horrific as that is. Because those things don't ultimately inform me. My belonging to God, my identity as God's possession is the most important possessive thing. And nothing can take me away from being that. I can be stateless. I can be familyless. I can be homeless. But I will never not be without God.
I will never not belong to him, the God who has me. And that is everything. Can you see how radical it is that we belong to God? As one martyr who was being burned at the stake in the great persecutions after the end of the New Testament said to his captors as they asked for him to confirm his name, he said, my earthly name is Marcus, but my real name is Christian. For to Christ alone and not the earth do I belong. Do we really understand? Are we absolutely daily convinced of the truth that we belong to God above everything else? And are we willing to live like that? Not concerned with earthly identifiers, but more concerned by my, by my belonging to God. As wonderful and as right as it is that we identify in different ways, as we belong to families and friends and sports teams and workplaces, that's wonderful. But do those things drive how I live and emote? Do they drive my ultimate identity? Do those things drive my satisfaction? Or does God... The people were promised that they would be God's treasure possession in the earth. That is how they were to be known. But not only that, verse 6, they would also be a kingdom of priests. Verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We don't have time to get into the intricacies of the priesthood today, more's the pity. Um, but what is good for us to understand is at this stage of Exodus, is that for Israel to become a kingdom of priests was an incredible privilege. The priest, in the biblical sense, was a person set apart for direct access to God, whose sole job was to intercede to God on behalf of the people. In other words, it was the priest who prayed to God on behalf of the nation, seeking his wisdom, teaching the people how to obey the law. But above all, it was the priest and the priest only who would make sacrifice to God on behalf of people's sin. And so the more people came to God through the priest and asked for forgiveness from God, something that we'll look at more next week, the more Israel became different to the other nations as they lived more under God's rule and blessing. So they looked completely different. You see, the priest's job was to maintain this relationship that God is talking about here. The relationship between God and man. And the more that people listened to and came to God through the priest, the more they followed him. And the more they followed God, the more they looked like him. The more they looked like God by obeying his laws, the more they looked different to the world. As under his protection, they grew in abundance and safety and in peace and radical harmony. And so they became incredibly attractive. And as they became incredibly attractive to everyone else, so people wanted to know this God of Israel. And so Israel was to be a light to the nations in that sense, as they drew people to God in themselves, making them eligible for the same provision, promise, blessing, and hope. Can you see? It was the priest, God's representative in the nation, his man, his mediator, his intercessor, who was meant to bring Israel to be a light to the nations, to be set apart, holy, and so for the whole nation to be made up of priests, for the whole nation to be made up of millions of set-apart individual people with personal access to God, well, can you imagine what kind of blessing that would bring on the earth? 
And that's exactly what we see today. For when we get to the New Testament, the priesthood was suddenly turned on its head as Christ, the, 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 the final and full and perfect priest, the perfect representation of the God of the Old Testament, came to earth as a man and died on the cross as he became the once and for all final sacrifice for the whole earth. It now means that every Christian in every congregation becomes a priest in every nation. Every Christian, every believer, every treasure of God now has the presence of God residing in them directly, able to relate to God directly, to repent to God directly, to speak to God directly, to seek his wisdom directly, not through someone else. This is the the priesthood of all believers. Every single man, woman, and child who follows Jesus is a priest set apart with personal access to the God of eternity. In the New Testament, this priestly had a very clear function, and it was different to the function in the Old Testament. For it is no longer that uh, we draw people into Israel, as Israel were meant to, but as priests, we now go out into the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 explains this, quoting this very passage. But you are a chosen race, says Peter. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And so as Christians, as a new church here in Collington, are we really striving to do as we were built to do, as God's treasure in the earth, ready to proclaim God's excellent rescue to the world around us? Are we really ready to be priests of God? In this relationship with God, are we really burdened by the lost? Are we hungry for people to get to know him? Am I willing to go out of my comfort zone to speak to people such that they too have the chance to become God's personal treasure? Priests with full access to him. So God's people have been brought close to him in an incredibly intimate way, with very personal language. The almighty I am Yahweh God, being as close as he has ever been to humanity, to his people. It's as if he's almost tangibly embracing them in his love for them as he describes this relationship. However, after the focus of this intimate, treasured, deeply personal, truly extraordinary relationship... There is now a surprise, a really big surprise that builds to the whole of the rest of this section. For even though God's people have been brought into this close relationship, God's people actually find themselves standing far off in total and utter fear in the sights and sounds of this terrifying mountain. Now, if God wanted to woo his people personally into caring, close and affectionate relationship, why on earth has he chosen to reveal his truth in this manner, in something so horrifying and unapproachable? What on earth is God doing? And that is our our last big point, point Two, God has brought us into a relationship where we rightly, truly fear him. 
Our first big point, God has brought us into relationship with himself, demonstrated and built in his past saving action, his present saving command, his promised future blessing. But he has, secondly, also brought us into a relationship where we rightly and truly fear him. And this is where we flick through very, very quickly to the end of the passage of the section that was just read before we preach. Just turn to chapter 20, verse 18 to 21 again. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the, mo- and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses says to the people, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. So the people of God stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What is going on here? God's people standing off in fear. Twice we see that they are standing far off because they're terrified. Why is God doing this when he's determined to get us to trust him and love him? Well, as you see, the whole of this section in Exodus is, dealing, is leading to us to this very question. We're going to have a really, really brief run through the rest of chapter 19, and it will be brief, I assure you. Chapter 19, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, so be ready for me, says the Lord. And what do they have to do to be ready for him? Verse 10, they have to be ready for God's approaching presence by being washed for a few days, bodies and clothes. Not only that, verse 12, Moses sets limits for the people around the mountain. For if they get too close, they're going to be put to death. This is to protect them from God's holiness. And then verse 16, on the third day, it begins to get really ominous. There is thunder, lightning, the unseen sound of a piercing trumpet. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? Every single human in the camp begins to tremble. It continues, verse 18, the mountain is now wrapped in smoke as God himself descends in a ball of fire until verse 19, the mountain itself trembles and rocks and buckles and quakes as this unseen trumpet blast gets louder and louder and louder until God himself summons Moses and again, verse 21, issues all the warnings. Do not touch this mountain, you will die. It is enough to put the fear of God into you. And so it should, says Moses. But at the same time, so it shouldn't. Chapter 20, verse 18. Moses says to the people, do not fear. For the Lord has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you. What is going on? Am I meant to be afraid here or not? I can't work it out. Well, both. The sight of God in his glory descending to his people for the first time in this physical way is meant to be truly terrifying. And yet, he really wants them to know that they need not be afraid of him. And so it must be true, mustn't it, that in this close, personal, belonging, treasured, priest-like relationship with this God, there is to be a right fear of this God and a wrong fear of this God, a fear we should have and a fear we shouldn't have. What we shouldn't fear is that this God is going to get us. 
You see, this mountain is not a sign, as the people grumbled last week, that God is bringing them in the wilderness to kill them. God is not out to get us, not at all. That's the wrong fear. What we shouldn't fear is that God's, as God's people is that God hasn't done anything but love us in special relationship with him. That is why his saving action in the past is so important. Don't be afraid, says Moses to the people. God is not out to get you. And it is absolutely vital that we get that. However, in terms of a right fear of him, don't think for a single moment, says God, in the smoke of this quaking mountain, that this relationship is to be taken lightly. That is the good fear of this God. A right fear, a fear of God that will stop you from sinning, we read here. A loving fear, a living fear of God that we should cultivate in our lives and that we should pray for. We need a holy fear of this almighty God. That I am brought into loving, close, personal relationship who is only ever for me. A fear that drives me to my knees in repentance as literally the fear of God is put in my heart. A fear that makes my heart quake at the thought of my sin before him. That makes my soul long to be on his side rather than against him. Charles Spurgeon used to pray every day, may this God graciously grant to me that kind of terrifying fear. As Mr. Beaver said to Lucy when she asked him if Aslan, the lion king of Narnia, was safe. Safe? <laughs> He's not safe but he is good. That is definitively the God of the Bible. He is not safe, but he is good. He is not tame, but he has brought us into a loving, personal, intimate, and enduring relationship with him. And so for us as Christians in our relationship with the loving God, do we have a loving fear of the loving God? Not an out-to-get-you fear, but a loving fear that drives us to our knees. That drives us to his word. That drives us to each other in unity. That drives us to radical repentance. And that drives us to want to go and tell people about this almighty God who has made himself known. Goodness, there's so much more in these verses. Forgive me for being long today. I know I have been. I can't tell you how important it is uh, that we truly see God for who he is here. Two sides of the same coin. The God who loves and calls you to himself, the God who is terrifyingly great and who will not be messed around with. For those of you who aren't Christians, this is the God of the Bible. The almighty God who wants to be for you and not against you. The almighty, powerful God who wants to love you and make you his treasured possession in the earth. The almighty God who can shake a mountain and yet who condescended himself to die on a wooden cross all for you. You are invited to come to this God today who doesn't hide who he really is, but who calls you to himself. And for those of us who are Christians, do we really have a right view of this God? Are we working correctly at this deeply precious but very serious relationship with him? Do we see our sin in the light of his power and battle it? Do we see the lost in the light of his love and speak to them? Do we see our identity in the light of our belonging to him and not worry about it? Do we see our lives as acts of obedient sacrifice in the light of his law and do something about it? And do we love others as he has loved us? 
dying for us whilst we were unlovable reprobates, willing, having been treated that way, to love those who don't love us and who don't love God, and to show that love by revealing the holy God who is waiting to bring them into relationship with him. And ultimately, in the light of truly difficult weeks and months as a church, can we see in the midst of deep suffering that this God who is shaking mountains loves you? Can you see in the midst of darkness and suffering that he has you, that you are his, that you belong to him, that you are his treasure, that you are safe, that you are being carried on his wings? Do you believe in the God that will never let you fail? Do you believe that he, in deep, enduring relationship with you, will hold you fast? Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so very much for the, the powerful sight of you that we get in the Bible. Father God, thank you that you do not hide who you are. In this passage, we see a mighty, powerful God, a God who we should rightly fear, but a God who has made himself known to us and who deeply wants us to be in relationship with you. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we really put ourselves right with you where we need to, whether that means putting ourselves right with other people in the church, confessing our sin to you, changing our behaviours, wanting to know more of you and wanting to be brought into obedience in, 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 in a loving way, in a way that we see works for our good and our enjoyment of this relationship. Heavenly Father, that above all, in all of this, even when we get all of this wrong, you still have us. You'll never let us go. We can never be separated from this God of love and we will be brought home safe on eagle's wings. Father, for those who don't know you, may they see and call on your name today in very powerful ways that they might be saved and that they might know you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.